So tonight, I'm going to talk about the fourth letter in the book of Revelation, and it's one of the seven letters, it's a letter to Theatira. Tom gave us a great overview, so I'm not going to give that overview in his first sermon, and then we're waiting on John's sermon, and Don gave us a fantastic masterclass last week, which I'm not going to try and replicate. So, before I jump into that letter, I'd first like to take you back into the Old Testament. Often there are elements in the Old Testament which provide symbolism to help us unlock the New Testament. And the unfolding of God's people Israel under the Old Covenant sometimes provides principles and symbolism which help us to unlock other passages in the New. Sometimes that's all to do with Jesus. It's always all to do with Jesus. And there's a word for that called typology, which just means Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus came to earth... He died in our place and he rose again, victorious. But until then, God had a system of sacrificial offering. There was a very large temple which was used to make sacrifices to God for different purposes. And one of these sacrifices was on one day a year called the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would go into the central part, which was called the Holy of Holies, which was where God's presence was thick, once a year he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. Now that yearly sacrifice was a big deal. Let me read from Leviticus 16, only three verses. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with a bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. Now, the high priest would sometimes enter the Holy of Holies with fear and trepidation. He would actually have a girdle tied around his waist made of rope because God's presence was so thick, but also God is so holy that sometimes the high priest wouldn't get to be making the sacrifice. He would take one step in and he'd be struck dead by God's holiness and then they'd have to pull him back out. Now, the high priest was a representative for the whole people of Israel. If he was unsuccessful in making that sacrifice, because his sin meant he'd not been able to make it, then the whole nation would not be blessed for the next year. However, if he was successful, which would mean he'd have to be sinless enough to enter the Holy of Holies, the nation would prosper. Now, get this. When it came to overall blessing for the nation of Israel... The sin of each individual Israelite did not stop the blessing. If the high priest was successful in his offering, the nation would be blessed regardless of the specific sins of the individual. Their sin would still have had natural consequences, but whether the nation was blessed was down to the high priest alone. You can probably guess where I'm going. That principle applies to an even greater degree to the church today. The New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 4 says... Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was and is the perfect high priest 
He never died, apart from once. He never fails, and his death on the cross, the ultimate once and for all sacrifice, was the most perfect offering ever made to God. God gave himself up, becoming both a perfect priest and the perfect offering. Today, access to God is made available to you, not just for a year, but for all eternity. The greatest blessing God will ever give to you is a relationship with him. No earthly thing can compare. Your sin might impact your fellowship with God, which just means your closeness of relationship to him. But it is Jesus' lack of sin and his sacrifice on behalf of you that impacts your standing and your position before God. Amen. So let me pray. Father, thank you that you've done it all. We don't need to try to strive to be holy without your power, without your presence in our lives. And I just pray that everything that I say that isn't of you would drop and everything that you want to pierce our hearts with would stay. And would you just affect change this evening? So back to our passage. Revelation 2, 18 to 29. Write to the angel of a church in Thyatira, the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like fine bronze, says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality, to eat meat, sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with a plague. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you, but hold on to what you have until I come. The one who is victorious and keeps my work to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So I've got a picture of Thyatira as it is today. It wasn't quite like that back then. And as a bit of context, Thyatira, at the time of this letter, was a trading city. It was at the intersection of multiple trade routes and was well known for a large number of different trades. Lydia, in the New Testament, you might remember, is from Thyatira. She traded in fine, I think, red linen. Those who worked there were part of guilds or clubs. And these guilds were quite tribal and could be exclusive. For instance, if you wanted to work in a linen trade, you had to be part of a linen guild and keep to their customs. This means that not keeping to their customs risks losing your own livelihood. The guilds would work hard, but they would play hard too, and not in a good way. It was expected that as part of a guild, you would join them in social activities, which would often involve excess in every way, and you get a picture. The church in Thyatira was not in a time of persecution. Those who were not Christians allowed Christians to live among them. If anything, their situation was similar to us in the West today. They didn't face risking their lives for their faith, but they did face risking rejection from their community 
and trade and compromise. The church at the time was obedient in many of their outward displays of faith. They were rich in love and disciplined, but clearly they were compromising when it came to matters of their hearts. Now, you might look at the reference to Jezebel and what Jesus says he will do with her children and think, that's a bit strong. The reference to Jezebel in verse 20 could have been an actual person, we're not sure, um, who was deceiving a church, or it could be symbolic of Jezebel, which represents idolatry, putting something above God. The strong wording towards Jezebel and her spiritual children shows God's attitude to those who lead his children away from him. We can be under no illusion that God was not pleased with how this idolatry was infecting a church. It's been said that Thyatira was the opposite of a church in Ephesus, which Tom talked about. In Ephesus, they were obedient in character and purity, but they lacked love. In Thyatira, they were full of love, but they lacked holiness. Probably how I think of myself, if I'm honest. Now, a reference to the Son of God at the beginning of a passage is the only time in Revelation reference is made to the Son of God, not the Son of Man, which is Jesus' other title. It's a reference to Psalm 2, and it's a drawing our attention to the rest of that psalm, which is where the Son of God is given all authority and power over all the earth. He is God, we are not, and we should be falling on our knees before him in surrender. This isn't what the church in Thyatira was doing. Jesus wasn't happy with the sinful actions of those in Thyatira. On the outside, they were committing acts of sexual immorality and idolatry, but this was the outflowing of a state of their hearts. They weren't putting God first in their lives. They thought they could have their cake and eat it, obey God in some things, but then serve themselves in others. Better to do that than lose out on the self-gratification that comes from sin, eh? Or from the benefits that come with being part of a guild. Even if it means putting the priorities of your guild above God's priorities. Surely God wouldn't want me to jeopardize providing for myself and my family, right? <laughs> Probably thought that a few weeks ago, if I'm honest. You might look at the sin Jesus identifies in the church at Thyatira and think, well, to be honest, they were pretty bad. And they were. But being honest, the state of mind and our hearts is often no different to theirs. If we stop thinking of sin as an action and think of it as anything where I put myself first instead of God, suddenly we're all guilty. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, heart, and mind. I don't do that. Most of the time, I do things that serve me. Or at least I make myself feel good about myself. And then God gets the scraps. Clearly from this passage, it's possible to be serving God in some things and yet serving ourselves in others. We might talk to him when we need something, and then when we get that thing, we stop talking to him. We might be generous with our money, outwardly, but not bother giving it away if we won't be thanked. My battleground is my workplace in the law firm. It's so much easier to join in when my colleagues are speaking negatively about someone else, especially if there's truth in what they're saying, than it is to choose another way. Or it is so much easier to take the credit for as many things as possible for my own advancement, even if it's to a detriment of others. But you can't trick God. You might compartmentalize your life into separate chunks, some over which God has control, like coming to church, others which he doesn't, like your money, or what language you use, or your drive for success in your career. But as a passage says, he is the one who examines minds and hearts. If the depths of our sin, 
or classically depravity, as some would call it, are so deep, what hope is there for us? Will we ever be able to eradicate it? Can any action ever be completely pure? Perhaps not entirely in this life, but what is certainly true is that trying to do so on your own won't get you anywhere. Sin is not something we can overcome on our own. If you look at the verse again, my suggestion is there is, a ver- there is a reason Jesus is described as having eyes like flames of fire. Fire isn't just hot, it purifies. Consider Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Or Proverbs 17, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Or Proverbs 25, take away the dross from a silver and the smith has material for a vessel. What do you do when you're caught in your sin? You look at Jesus. He is the one who will purify you. His eyes have the power to cleanse your heart and your actions. Like someone caught in quicksand, don't wriggle and writhe to get out. Grab hold of the one who has the power to pull you out. Quite regularly, I fall into a trap of trying to deal with my own sin on my own. Keep it hidden, keep it under control. If I try a little harder next time, I won't do it again. But it's a lie. I do it again and again and again. It doesn't work. I still gossip. I still take selfish pride in my own abilities. I still put things above God every day. But it doesn't have to be like that. Yes, the Bible teaches complete holiness will only come in heaven. But we don't have to be completely overwhelmed in our sin. We have power over it. John Owen, an 18th century theologian, puts it like this. This is the saddest warfare any person can be engaged in. Someone who is powerfully convicted by the law is pressed to fight against sin, but he has no strength for the combat. He can only fight, he can never conquer. In other words, only one person in the history of the world had the power to defeat sin, and it wasn't you. So how do we overcome? What does this actually mean in our lives? Perhaps Watchman Nee, a Chinese theologian, can help you. He says in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, which is quite short, it's fantastic. For our part, we need not struggle to occupy ground that is already ours. In Christ, we are conquerors, nay, more than conquerors. In him, therefore, we stand. So today we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. We do not fight in order to win, but because in Christ we have already won. Overcomers are those who rest in the victory already given to them by their God. This is effectively acknowledging it's only by God's power that we can be free from our sin. Only by letting go of doing it entirely ourselves that we will give God permission to do it through us. Now in theological teaching, there are two concepts called regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration... I'm thinking of Charles Spurgeon, I've read him say this, is when God saves you, you're born again. Sanctification is when God God changes you to live a holy life. I think, as a 21st century church, we're better on our teaching of regeneration, being saved, than we are with sanctification. And that's where the illustration about the great high priest comes in. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, now when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He considers the offering made by the greatest great high priest on our behalf as more than enough to save us. 
But that same concept of substitution, where Jesus took our place, applies just as much to sanctification as it does to regeneration. Jesus' actions on the cross didn't just make you holy before God. It gave you the power through him to live a holy life. He broke sin's power. Joseph Prince, another hero of mine from Singapore, talks well on this subject. He says that every time we find ourselves tempted to sin, we should declare over ourselves, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Not I will be, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Discipline and strength of will are critical in the fight for holiness. But that's like having a car for a journey without having any petrol. Only Jesus in you has the power to do it. Stop relying on yourself. Admit you're not good enough on your own. Surrender to his grace. Some might hear that and think, that's giving up. Precisely. (laughs) It's giving up on doing it ourselves. Let go and let God. My son Asher recently had been promised some chocolate. I told him he could have some after he'd eaten his tea. And he didn't like it. He declared in defiance, I want it now. Isn't that what we do with God all the time? I will do the thing that isn't serving me later, God. But first I want what I want. And what did I do? I don't always do this. I knelt down to Asher's level. I put my hand on his cheek. And with as much love as I could muster, I said, I am daddy. I know best. You will not have chocolate until after tea. Now, he didn't like it. And I had to say again about five times. And he did eventually accept what I was saying. It wasn't about the chocolate to me. It was about Asher learning that what he wants isn't always best, but his daddy does know. The next time Asher is in that situation, what is it that will make him accept what I say over what he wants? Is it how firm I've been? Maybe a little. Or is it that he can see I love him and know best? Absolutely. Asher's ability to deny himself comes from his relationship with his daddy. His trust that daddy loves him and knows best. Let your ability to put God first come from your relationship with your father in heaven too. Your trust that he loves you, not from a sense of guilt. Let your conviction of sin stay, but your guilt must go. So in conclusion, look to Jesus. Sin is present in all of us. You cannot overcome it on your own. You overcome it by looking at Jesus. If you find yourself living a life like a church in Thyatira, where you serve God in some things, but put yourself first in others, don't wrestle with it on your own. Look to Jesus. Recognize that he has gone before you, lived a perfect life on your behalf, and now is ready to give you the strength to live worthy of your position. Let Jesus, who lives inside you through the Holy Spirit, be your holiness. Give up on doing it yourself. Look to him. Do not be like a church in Theatira. Let God reign as king over every area of your life. If you're feeling guilty for your sin, look to Jesus. For one who God sees when he looks at you. Honor him by accepting who God says you are, not who the world says you are. I'll say that again. Honor him, Jesus, by accepting who God says you are, not who the world says you are. I have to do this all the time. 
do this and the need to be wanted or accepted or valued will slowly fade. As the hymn puts it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, help us look to you more, rely on you more, confess our weaknesses and your strength more. Only you could have saved us, only you can purify us. Amen. Amen.